Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Dr. Jana, how you doing? Hello, Joe. Welcome to episode 42 of the Science of Sex podcast. 42, the answer to everything. Is it? Yeah, don't you know? I do not know what that means. Really? You have not read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Oh, no. I was never a big classic sci-fi guy. <sighs> this is so much more than sci-fi. This is this is a commentary on Earth. Okay. In the funniest, most witty, and intelligent way I've ever read. It's amazing. I, I, I'm not a sci-fi fan. Yeah. And I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay. And 42 is the answer to life the universe and everything <laughs> all right well since you're a professor that'll be my homework for the week that really should be i'll it's try to a, read such a quick and fun read hitchhiker's guide to galaxy but we, we got an exciting show today because we have a guest coming in studio which yes, is gonna be pretty cool do. right in front it's of yours so rare yeah. to have a guest in the studio and i'm so excited to have this particular guest in the studio and that is justin laymiller mm-hmm. who you might remember do you remember justin i know we he's appeared on the show once before right yes he has he talked to us about gay cuckolding Ooh, in which the was, first season. That was a very popular episode, yeah. Yes, it was. Apparently, cuckolding is a very popular topic. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and we have him now in the studio because he just published a new book Nice on uh, sexual fantasies based on a very large survey that he conducted with lots and lots of people who took it. And he will now tell us the answer to... Sexual 42. fantasies. It's not well, 42? <laughs> yes, there are 42 sexual fantasies that people have. <laughs> and now I want to say, Dr. John, the reason people don't come in the studio much is because we talk to professors all over the world. Yes, that so is correct. it's not that people are afraid of us. <laughs> or do not, or we do not bite unless asked very nicely. Yeah, I mean it's all about consent. Yes. So yeah, so unless they're in New York where we tape the show, they don't come by. So exactly. I just and Justin, throw that out there. Justin is not in New York normally, but he happens to be passing through. So we snatched him for an hour to okay. talk to us. All right, before we get Justin in here, I got a couple things I saw mm-hmm. online over the weekend I wanted to talk to you about, and it's one thing that we, we kind of joke about, and you kind of yell at me every <laughs> once in a while about love at first sight. How uh-huh. love at first sight doesn't exist kind of thing. And what yeah. do you say when I say love at first sight doesn't exist? Well, it's lost at, at first, first sight. sight. Yes, I know. That's yeah. it. Is. But now, <laughs> I, know, I know you too well. But scientists now discover it takes just a third of a second to become attracted to someone. So these are nerdy neuroscientists, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, All neuroscientists have to be nerdy, they're nerdy obviously. Right. When you have neuro in there, of course. Mm-hmm. So they say people identify someone's gender after 244 milliseconds, and then they give a verdict of their attractiveness just 59 milliseconds later. That's yep. really fast. That is really fast. Did you think that it takes us a lot longer to identify gender and then evaluate attractiveness? What would have been your guess? How long does it take us to do that? Well, here's the thing. When we get into milliseconds, that's where it gets into the micro minutia of, of time. <laughs> like no one talks in milliseconds and you never thought. Of it. I mean, if you were if you were saying to me, it takes two seconds to mm-hmm. find someone, right. I would believe that. But when it gets that fast, that instantaneous, <laughs> that's kind of mind-blowing to me. It really is instantaneous. And we don't quite get that. And of course, it's not like that initial evaluation is the end-all be-all and is going to determine whether you end up, say, hooking up with somebody or you end up getting married to that person or you find them attractive going forward. So there are many other things that are are going to play a role in whether you evaluate someone's attractiveness down the line as someone that you want to be with or not. But we do, the gender piece makes sense because evolutionarily speaking, you need to know whether this potential person is, is, uh, is a man or a woman 
for, for the, mating reasons. For mating reasons. Right. And, and also safety reasons. In many oh. different times and, and, and circumstances, it may be dangerous if you are encountering a woman versus a man, right? So Got there's it. a different danger component or safety mm. component with those two things, with those two genders. And then there is also the mating uh, component with whether it's a, it's a man or a woman, whether it's relevant to you in that way or it's not relevant to you in that mating way. And so that makes perfect sense that it would be evaluated very quickly. A third of a second. A third of a second, actually less than a third. <laughs> yeah. 244 milliseconds is a quarter of a second. Wow. A quarter of a second is all it takes to tell whether somebody's a is a man or a woman for the most part, right? Yeah. Because there are these many obvious cues both both uh, kind of physical mm-hmm. appearance that is not uh, under the person's choice right. in terms of cheekbones, a facial hair or whatever or that is not that influenced by by grooming. Yeah. And then there are all the grooming aspects of sure. gendered cues that are culture dependent. So yeah, gender makes sense. But then the attractiveness is really interesting. You add another 60 seconds, which makes a total of a third yeah. of a second. 60 milliseconds. Right? 60 milliseconds. milliseconds. Right, yeah. right, right. I mean, that's super fast. And now this comes from your favorite country. Well, one of your favorite countries, Germany. Yay, Germany. I know you're a big I fan sure of Germany. Like Berlin. Well, Berlin. 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 Oh, I sorry. really like Berlin. But you like which, the country. Which happens to be in Germany. <laughs> yeah. So what they did with it's the... It's like, t- I love New York, which happens to be in the US. In the US. Yeah. Yes. We won't get into that, but anyway... <laughs> So a team of psychologists at at, uh, University of Bamberg, and what they did is they monitored the brain activity of 25 undergrads as they viewed 100 portraits and registered their gender and whether they were attractive. So 25 people, is that a a large enough case study? I know you're – that's why I come to you because you're a stickler on these kind of things. So Yeah, I mean 25 does not sound like a very large sample, but when you're dealing with with these kind of lab studies and and neuroscience studies where you have to put people in brain scans and whatnot, Mm -hmm. those are the numbers that you normally see. See, and you okay. can certainly generalize to some extent. Now, of course, another thing that might be relevant here is these are all undergrads. That means these are young people who are in that prime time for mating. Oh, so okay. for them, the attractiveness might be particularly le- relevant. Maybe for people who are older, who've already mated, who already have children, who are sort of less, for, for whom the mating aspect of their lives is less salient, less right, important. Uh, important in yeah. that moment, they may take a little longer. I don't know. That would be yeah. that would be an interesting comparison to make to see whether there is that difference. Dr. John, it's funny, uh, you know, describing this study with 25 undergrads viewing the 100 portraits, they basically did a scientific Tinder. Right. They flashed (laughs) portraits and immediately because that's, you know, as we all know, Tinder works. It's usually just about instant attraction. No one's reading the bios or anything like that. They're going flip, 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 flip really quick. So they're doing it in a third of a second. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think this was inspired by this new way that we now have to evaluate people and decide whether we want to go out on a date or not by by the availability of Tinder, which is exactly that, allows you to very quickly decide whether you find someone attractive or not. And I think when Tinder first came onto the scene, there was this worry that people were now not going to be taking in all the information that some more traditional websites like OkCupid or whatever that had a lot more information about who this person is. I like long walks on the beach. beach. (laughs) (laughs) Romantic dinner. I work out three times a week. (laughs) But yeah, no. So 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 there was that worry and people were like, you know how are you, how can you possibly know but the thing is and this research now shows that that is the case indeed we do tend to make these split second a third of a second mm-hmm. evaluations of someone's basic physical attractiveness and that is and again as i said this is, it doesn't necessarily mean that 
that's all the information you're ever going to take into consideration when you meet someone. Right. But that is enough to tell you, are you initially physically attracted to this person or not? Is there that initial pull of, oh my God, mm, yummy, or eh, not really. Now, of course, as you get to know somebody, if you do give them a chance yeah. or if you, you, if you have the chance to You give them more them, than a third of a second. Right, exactly. You might uh, decide that based on the other information that you pick up about them. Yeah. And, and that can be both you know, their personality or whatever their behavior, but also their mannerisms and how they speak, tone of voice, how they move, like all of these both physical and psychological characteristics that you're going to learn about this person. They can make you more or less attracted to that person, yeah. more or less likely that you want to be with them in whatever way possible or not. All like, right. So is this good? Is it good that it takes just a third of a second to become attracted to someone? <laughs> To become attracted. Well, yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't know. Do, do you do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, are you, are you bothered by by that? Are you upset? Not upset, obviously. <laughs> uh, as you can tell, I'm not upset, but it is scary. I think it's frightening. Oh, so you're not upset, but it's scary. It's scary. Being, sc- <laughs> being well, scared is not upsetting. Yeah, well, okay, no, okay. no, no, not necessarily. <laughs> no, because the fact that someone is that could make such an impression so quickly is just so incredibly mind-boggling. So fast to be like, boom. I mean, if this, me saying boom is, is slower longer, yeah. than it does to find if you're attracted to somebody. Yeah, but again, as I said, th- there is an evolutionary reason behind that as yeah. well. Because again, if you are, especially if that mating goal is relevant to you in that moment, you want to be able to quickly uh, classify the, all the humans that you see into yeah. these categories of potential yes and potential, potential no. And you want to be able to do that uh, quickly. But of course, in, in real life, we get, even on Tinder, we give people a lot more more than a third of a second because you know it, you have I don't know I've you, seen one of my guy friends they <laughs> flip pretty fast yes you can certainly flip pretty fast but even you know for the most part you do have and you are going to go through a few a few images of that same person right. before you decide yes or no unless that first one is very very unappealing <laughs> right. I guess the, and then people do read a little bit of the profiles but you know to be fair Hey, people, again, were very worried when Tinder came on onto the scene that now all these deci- decisions that people make about who to date are going to be made so superficially based on nothing but this very brief uh, image that yeah. they have of, of the visual appearance of someone. But truth be told, there's no matter how much information you have about these people, let's say on OkCupid okay, okay or whatever, it's still... you. you you are going to make your decision whether to be with them or not once you see them and interact with them in person. Right. So, and, and the vast majority of those decisions are going to be made based on the physical appearance and whatever little bit of information that you're going to collect about that person, whether on their profile or when you start texting uh, ba- yeah, back and forth. Messaging. But it is really about once you get to meet them in person that that's going to get decided. And once you meet them in person, you have a lot more than a third of a second. And you are <laughs> going to collect all of that additional physical right. and psychological information about them. You have them. like three and a half seconds. That, <laughs> that's what it goes up. We'll work on that for the next study. All right. So um, we have Justin and Lily Miller who's standing outside in the lobby. Uh, before we get in here, why don't you talk him up and tell me about him? What's, what is it about Justin Lay Miller that he deserves to be on the show twice? 
<laughs> oh my God, Justin deserves to be on the show many times, and we are going to have him back again and again and again because okay. he is a pretty prolific researcher, and especially for someone who doesn't have one of these tenure track positions, like a full time professor position, because he's been a lecturer, he's been he's been in in, in academia, but he is not one of those like tenure track professors who mostly get paid to right. do research. And in fact, he gets paid you know to to teach some classes and then to do all of this writing for popular media wow. now books, yeah and. And, and for someone like that to be as prolific in the research department that he's not getting paid for, right? To yeah. find the time to do all that is quite impressive, I would say. Because I've been trying to do that, to be to be honest, for the last three or four years while uh, while I've been an adjunct professor yeah. who's only getting paid academically to teach classes, right? Not to not to do research, and it's really hard to find the time and motivation to do research. So I'm very impressed with that. And he also has a, a relatively wide spectrum of uh, research subjects that he's uh, tackled in in his studies, including casual sex, uh, consensual non-monogamy, gay things like gay cuckolding, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, f- sexual fantasies more broadly, f- uh, friends with benefits, social support for, for romantic relationships, yeah. okay. and how important that might be for the long-term uh, survival of relationships. So he has a lot of interesting things to say, and he's a great speaker, and he's super fun, and he's a great friend. So we're going to have Dr. Justin Miller, who's a soci- social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, to talk to us about his new book called Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire, and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. All right, Dr. Justin, give me a second. He's standing right there. We'll get Dr. Justin Miller in here. I'll be right back. Okay. Okay. Don't go anywhere, okay? Okay. Jana, look who's here. Hello. Hi. Dr. Justin Miller, welcome back to the Science of Sex podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here in the studio this time. Yes. It's so much better to have you here in the studio (laughs) than to have you next to us. I don't know. It depends. Hmm? We're pretty aggressive. Like our body language and our energies is overwhelming for a lot of people sometimes. Right. No? Right. Yeah. I'm sure he's going to get scared away and run away. Mid conversation. I don't know. Like How are you I'm feeling so far, Justin? Good. Hey, it takes a lot to scare me. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Thick skin. Yeah, yeah. You kind of have to have a thick skin if you're in this business, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know how you do it otherwise. I know. I often get get asked that about like, well, how do you deal with some of the stuff? And like, eh, you just have to have thick skin. Mm-hmm. What are some of the main things that, or the, the the biggest thing that you feel like you've had to have? thick skin for Mm. as you were doing all the sexuality research and education and talking to general audiences about the research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's changed over time. I think when I was more of a sex educator, I was, you know, worried about students reactions to talking about controversial subjects. Mm. Um, But I found a way to manage that in the classroom. And I think that that really helped when I sort of made the transition to becoming more of a public educator uh, that I had had a lot of experience with trying to frame things in a way that, you know, I'm talking about a controversial subject, but still making it accessible to people and trying not to offend yeah. everybody. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a tall or order. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, I had about 10 years of that before <laughs> I started, you know, really becoming a more public, public speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know it's changed with students nowadays? Because, you know, millennials get the bad rap where they're, they're so sensitive and blah, blah, blah. Have you felt you need to adapt to the generations? You know, because basically going 10 years, you're kind of getting, you've kind of spanned 
there. And, and people say that all the time about uh, this generation of students. They're much more sensitive. Yeah. Uh, and um, Special snowflakes that yeah. trigger warnings <laughs> yes. for yeah. everything and anything. But, you know, honestly, I haven't really found that in my experience, at least the way that I frame subjects with them. I haven't shied away from talking about anything controversial with them. I just do it in a way that's very careful. And I find that they're actually really receptive to it. They seem to be really thoughtful. Mm. So I think a lot of our hesitancy to talk about controversial issues really says more about us mm-hmm. uh, and that we need to change the way that we're presenting the information rather than just ignoring it. Yeah, I haven't had that experience with, with my, my students. We've talked about all sorts of topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, back to what we're supposed to be talking about today, which mm-hmm. is your new book. Yeah. You just published the book. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It was several years in the making, mm-hmm. um, about four years or so. Four years. Wow. From the yeah. time that I conceptualized it till the time it came out in print. So I'm very glad. Are you a procrastinator by nature? Is that why it takes you so long? Or? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Actually, he's not. I don't think so. He's I'm pretty efficient. Yeah. Um, a big part of the reason it took so long was because I did a massive survey to form the basis for the book. And I spent close to two years wow. surveying um, more than 4,000 Americans about their biggest sexual fantasies and uh, hundreds of people, places, things that might have appeared in their fantasies. And then I had to analyze all that data and write about it. And uh, it, it took a while. Okay. So not a procrastinator. All right. <laughs> no, definitely not a procrastinator. No. As I was saying, he's so prolific. It's it's quite remarkable. I like, I don't know how he does it. I, I want some of, some of his brain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I know you can't judge a book by its cover, but I do like the cover. I mean, it's, it's eye-catching. So if you haven't seen it, it's... It's just bodies, right? Is there, it's like a lot <laughs> it's of bodies thrown together. A lot of appendages. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Um, but I like it because it's gender neutral, it's racially diverse, and and sensual all mm. at the same time. So it, it checks all the boxes. <laughs> How did that happen? How, where did the idea come from? Why, why did you decide to do this book, this particular book? Mm-hmm. Why sexual fantasies? So a big part of it stemmed from the fact that a few years ago, I wrote a textbook on human sexuality, and I reviewed... Which I love and I use. Like That's that's the textbook that I use from my human sexuality students in at NYU. Thank you. He's blushing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Should be. Uh, so uh, in writing that book, I had to review all the literature on sexual fantasies, and I just found that there were so many questions I had that had never really been answered. And the last major review paper, a scientific review paper on sex fantasies was published in the mid nineties and there were lots of directions for future research listed there that it just no one had picked up on and yeah. Yeah. So I thought, ah, there's there's so many things here that would be interesting and worth addressing. You know, for example, how do we see ourselves in our sex fantasies and what does that say about you? I don't know of any work that's really explored that. So I rather than do this as sort of a piecemeal thing that consumes me for the rest of my career. <laughs> I decided to do just one huge study and write a book about it. Get it over with. Mm-hmm. All right. And how different is it from writing a textbook to a book that you're trying to sell to the masses? It's it's very different yeah. uh, because you got to make it something that people can stay engaged with mm. without feeling like it's a class. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So it's a very different style of writing. And that people might read it sort of in one go, as opposed to chapter by chapter that was assigned to them over the course of you know three months or right, something. Right. And I love the title, Tell Me What You Want, but then it has that super long subtitle, mm-hmm. The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. So you give the science part, but also give some something applicable to the uh, layman at home who's looking for a little help, right? Absolutely. And I think that that's a really important part. People are looking for ways to improve their sex lives, but we don't have a lot of great sources we can go to. And I think um, the best information we have is 
based on scientific data. You know, if you're going to make a decision on what mm-hmm. to do or what not to do, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather see some data rather than just take advice from a person based on their own personal experiences. Amen. Yeah. So before we get to some of those applied pieces of advice that we can take from the from the data, let's uh, let's talk about the data. What what was the survey? And I remember the survey. I shared it you know, widely, and uh, lots of my students took it. Lots of the people that uh, on my social media audience took it. Tell us about the survey of 4,000 people. So it was 4,175 <laughs> Americans. But who's counting? Uh, <laughs> who, who, who took the survey. Um, I, I limited the the final sample specifically to people who were citizens or residents of the United States because I wanted to look at sort of the role that our culture plays in mm. our sexual fantasies. And when you start looking at um, people from other cultures, that can... Muddy things yeah. up, yeah. But the survey itself was 369 questions. Uh, it took a while to complete. <laughs> I did not pay people to do it. Uh, and so that's part of the reason why it took so long to gather the data. Uh, it was just waiting for that sample Jeez. to build. People... Wait, but how long did it take people to fill <laughs> a 369-question survey? Yeah, it was somewhere between a half hour and an hour. Okay. I, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, but it was it's, a, it's a long time. Investment. Yeah. yeah. Did a lot of people start the survey and never finish that? Sure. Well, that, <laughs> that happens with every yeah, online survey. Yeah. yeah. So they wrote about their biggest sex fantasy of all time, um, in, using as many words as they want. So some of these fantasies were really long. Um, and then I had them sum it up in just one word, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, that's cool. Uh, mm. to, to make word clouds of <laughs> people's mm-hmm. favorite fantasies. Uh, and then it was just hundreds of questions about what they fantasized about, who they fantasized about, where, uh, and then questions about their personality, their sexual history, wow. their demographics. So it's a, a massive collection of information. You really should have worked harder on this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's overwhelming. Just you describing it is, is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> a lot went into it. And I also had a, several colleagues review the uh, survey before I collected any data. And I think Jana was one of those Whoa. people who gave feedback on it, mm-hmm. which was pretty helpful. I remember that a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had all of this kind of open-ended questions, all, all of these open-ended questions where people can describe their biggest sexual fantasy. Right. And then you had some questions around that. Lots of questions about that particular fantasy. Mm-hmm. But then later it was, you know, hundreds of questions about have you ever fantasized about these other things and how frequently. And that and was multiple choice? Yes. Okay. Yeah. How did you try grouping these these different types of fantasies that you asked about? So the the major analysis I did for the book was to take the open-ended descriptions of people's fantasies. And then I qualitatively coded them looking for themes. And what I found there was that there were seven major themes that emerged, uh, that, that seemed to characterize people's favorite fantasies of all time. Okay. Wow. So you wrote like a sex code. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in terms of, you know, building, you know, online, you built your own code. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. I I, kind of think of it as these are sort of the, the building blocks of sexual desire and they're not necessarily independent things, but, people's favorite fantasies can have multiple elements at the same time. You know, Mm -hmm. for example, multi-partner sex was the most popular sexual fantasy. Um, Not for men, though, right? They don't want that. (laughs) For men and for women. Oh, okay. I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes Jonathan doesn't get my sarcasm. You've learned already a thing or two, I thought. Gee, you you got me fooled Uh, for a second. Okay. uh, But multi-partner sex often includes an element of BDSM in it. You know, for example, with a, a gangbang scenario, which was very popular, there's someone being dominated in that situation. So uh, you can often see multiple themes. There there could be, not necessarily. Not Yes, there could be. (laughs) 
this is an interesting one because a lot of people often think that a gangbang always includes some level of domination submission that you know if if it's a a, a woman being gangbanged by multiple men then she must be in this submissive position and mm-hmm. she doesn't not no. necessarily right yep. she could it, that could be played out in a way where she is just as dominant as all the men and she's running the show even more dominant where she's kind of bossing them around and telling right. them how to do this and what to do so yeah and that's one of the things i love about fantasies is the way we individually contextualize them. You know, mm. for example, threesomes were the most popular form of, of group sex people fantasized about, but not every threesome is the same. You know, there oh, so yeah. a lot right. of people want to be the center of attention in theirs, but um, other times they want everybody to be mutually equal participants in the mm-hmm. activity. Uh, sometimes they want to know the other people they're involved with and they want one to be their romantic partner. Other times they want it to be mm. strangers or, or they want to get involved with a couple. So right. it's so fascinating. So many different. Yeah. Why do you think threesome is the first number one? I mean, is it because it's so, I mean, pardon like a, a young person's term, is it basic? <laughs> is it just like, oh, at, at Everyone automatically, you know, defaults to a threesome. No, no, for fantasies. When it comes uh-huh. to fantasies, uh-huh. yeah, why, why would that be number one? I, I think there's a couple reasons. One is when people are in, say, a monogamous romantic relationship, an easy way to add some novelty to that relationship. Is add to one, add another partner, <laughs> right? And so you're not really replacing your partner; you're just adding mm-hmm. this extra element. Uh, to the activity. I think another thing people find appealing about it is just sort of this state of sensory overload that happens when you're in a threesome and uh, you've got multiple bodies that that you can touch and experience in in different ways, uh, visually, uh, physically, sounds, you know, Mm -hmm. you've got all of that at once. And so it's this overwhelming, immersive experience. Mm. And I think that oftentimes that's what people are looking for in their fantasies, whether it's about threesomes or not, just because they need some way to kind of get lost in the moment and get out of their head. What percentage of people had multi-partner sex as their most uh, frequent or, or how did you ask it? The, the most their common favorite or fantasy. favorite favorite fantasy? Okay. Yeah, favorite fantasy or biggest fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about a third of the, the biggest fantasies wow. were multi-partner. The top three fantasies were multi-partner, BDSM, which, again, is another fantasy that takes a lot of different forms. <laughs> sure. Uh, depending on what people want. Uh, and then the the other big one was just sort of what I called novelty, adventure, and variety. It was sort of just breaking out of your routine, doing something different, having sex in a new location, yeah. trying a new position. Um, it's, it, it's kind of a broad category, but it's just for that person, it's trying something new. Mm. So this was... It being categorized as as the novelty one would be something that where the emphasis is on doing something different from the routine. Right. So, so for example, I had some participants who said, my, my favorite fantasy is oral sex because I don't receive it. Uh, mm. and, and that's really all they said. Oh. Um, and so, so for them, it's just sort of about, I, I want this activity that I, I just never otherwise get to experience or I've never tried before. Right. Regardless of how common or uncommon that particular sex act or whatever it is might right. be. Right. Absolutely. Okay. That's so funny. So that's you put that in its own group. Anything different from their basic sex, you considered an, a novelty. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's some level of subjectivity in how you, you categorize these things yeah. when you're coding mm. them. Um, you, you know, and is, is it novelty or is it a, a taboo element or, you know, what's what's the predominant theme in the fantasy? Um, because, like I said, a lot of these fantasies had more than one theme in it. Yeah. But I think when you sort of take these seven fantasies and, and – 
use them as sort of the building blocks, you can see that they all come together and account for the vast majority of what we're fantasizing about. Mm. Um, the other ones I didn't mention, so mm-hmm. I talked about taboo fantasies. Uh, there was also sort of the, the gender bending and, and sexual flexibility fantasies where people were playing with their gender role or expression in some way. Uh, mm. So, for example, cross-dressing or, or having sex with um, uh, a transgender partner. Um, or if you're heterosexually identified, having a same-sex partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were the the passion and romance fantasies where people are, you know, just meeting needs for emotional connection or or just wanting to feel desired or just, just meeting their emotional needs in some way. And the other major fantasy was uh, what I called partner sharing and non-monogamy. So this was something that was different from, say, your, your basic group sex fantasy where it was somebody wanting to be in a sexually open relationship oh. in some way. So that could be swinging. It could be cuckolding. Uh, it could be... Uh, um, polyamory. So it's something not necessarily where they're having sex with multiple people at the same time, but they have the freedom to, to have multiple partners. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And that was distinctive enough from the multi-partner sex it, fantasy to receive its own category? In my view, it was. Hmm. And I think, like I said, the thing that for me distinguished them was that it was more about changing the structure of their relationship and not necessarily having multiple partners at once. Hmm. Uh, I think in most of the the threesome and and, and group sex fantasies, people weren't talking about changing their relationship. They could also be single. Maybe they weren't in a relationship. Right, right. Multi-partner fantasies. It was about the moment of sex and the number of people that sexual encounter included. Right. Interesting. And and you said you made these groupings based on that one word that people uh, describe their fantasy as at the end or based on the very long potentially description that they gave of it? I used the one word fantasies primarily in categorizing these and when it wasn't clear from the one word fantasy I would go back and look Mm. at what the longer fantasy description was to kind of see what they meant because sometimes people use words that I wasn't familiar with. <laughs> right. uh, Google or, or there were typos in it, and, mm. you know. So I had to go back and. Oh, it's vague. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. gotcha. You know, and then of course there were some people who just wrote in sex. You know, yeah. <laughs> so like, how did you phrase that question? The one word. How did, how was that actually phrased to them? Take this fantasy that you just described, and if you could condense it to a single word that encapsulates the major theme. Okay, it was something along those lines. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get let's get into some of these categories. Uh, taboo, because since you said it is a subjective study, mm-hmm. what was what did you, <laughs> as the code writer, <laughs> deem as taboo? So it was doing something that would be considered culturally deviant in in, in some way. It could be an illegal activity, but not necessarily. Okay. Uh, so so a lot of the things that fell in this category were exhibitionism fantasies where people are exposing themselves or they're engaging in um, voyeuristic activities okay. where they're spying on someone else having sex or it could involve uh, a fetish mm. act uh, of some sort. Um, there were lots of different forms that taboo fantasies could take. Now, uh, in terms of taboo, when it came to, were, were there some that you saw, you're like, what the hell is that? Did you, because, I mean, even though you've been doing this for so long, was there some where you're like, I don't even know what that is. So so one fantasy that I found to be really interesting, and I only received one like this, uh, it was called Human Cow, is how the person described it. Human, Human Cow. Cow. Human okay. Cow. And so I did some digging to, to kind of... <laughs> or milking. Know, yeah, to, to <laughs> learn more about it and, and what this fantasy entails. And basically, she wanted to be tied up in the center of town and milked and, um, well, she wanted to be force-fed hormones that would make her lactate continuously. So she would wow. people could come in and milk her at will and then also have sex with her. Um, and I did some digging later on and found that there's actually this whole genre of porn that's 
devoted to human cows. Uh, and uh, it's, it's often human women's heads on cows' bodies. Uh, and so that's <laughs> that's a whole genre of porn. So I, I, I learned something <laughs> wow. uh, in, in doing this survey. It's amazing, too. As expensive as the study is, 4,000 plus, there was just the one human yep. cow. Yep. <laughs> that's so funny. But, you know, there's if you search Pornhub, there are uh, hundreds and hundreds of videos <laughs> on this. So, so yeah. funny. So why are fantasies so important? Like what and what is the role? I think when we talk about fantasies, it's it's unclear often what they are. Is this something that people really want to do in real life? They just haven't had an opportunity to do it. Is this something that is kind of separate from people's actual behaviors or what they want to do in 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 real life? Which I guess is somewhat of a separate question. But what is the role in general that sexual fantasies play in our life? That's a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, <laughs> we can break them down. That's her but, gift. Uh, <laughs> I think a, a, a good place to start is to say, you know, I see a distinction between a fantasy and a desire. Oftentimes these things overlap, but not always. When you look at people's favorite fantasy of all time, for the vast majority of them, that is a desire. It's something that they want. They say they want to act on in the future. Um, but when I looked at the hundreds of other people, places, things that they had fantasized about, not all of them were, were necessarily desires, right? You might have a thought that just pops into your head. It turns you on, but you don't actually want to do it. Mm. So, so fantasy and desire are separate but overlapping okay. categories. Did you, did you ask uh, in, in the survey about whether this most you know, common or, or biggest fantasy is something that they wanted to play out. And also if they'd ever done it before. Mm. Uh, so I found that it, it was, I want to say around 80% or so of participants who said uh, that their biggest fantasy, maybe it was even more, uh, said that they wanted to act on it at some point in their life. But only about one in five had actually acted on mm. their fantasy before. So there's a big gap between fantasy and reality. Um, of what people have done, but maybe they haven't been given the opportunity. I mean, 80%, as you said, would do it if given the opportunity. Although that is the biggest fantasy, whereas mm -hmm. we have many other fantasies that are smaller fantasies. I mean, yes. this is something that people probably masturbate to and think about on a yep. very frequent basis. And that makes sense to me that it would be something like 80% of people would want to do it in real life if given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. But I can imagine a lot of other more sporadic fantasies or rarer ones are not necessarily things they want to do. But as you said, it's just a thought that came to you and aroused you in that moment, but you don't actually want to do. Right. And I think a good example of that would be when I asked people about incest fantasies, I actually mm. found that about one in five participants had had an incest fantasy at some point before defined specifically as sex with a blood relative. But that doesn't mean that 20% of people <laughs> want to act on incest right. fantasies, right? So maybe it was a thought that popped into your head at some point that you found to be arousing, mm. but you don't want to do it. And maybe that fantasy never emerged again, right? right? Mm. Or they got off on, you know, incest porn or something like right. that. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And what do you, how do you think of, of what the, the role of sexual fantasies is in someone's life? Is that, is that a good thing? Is, is there something, I guess, I don't know if you ask that and, and you analyze the data in that way or we know from previous research about fantasies, but is having more sexual fantasies or more frequent sexual fantasies or a more diverse set of sexual fantasies, is that something that is sort of good, healthier for your sex life or, or not? Is there any correlation in, in that regard? Yeah. So, Fantasies are generally considered to be a sign of 
positive and, and healthy sexuality. And, and the vast majority of people have sex fantasies. And I think when you look at their reasons for fantasizing, you see that they fulfill this wide range of functions. Um, so it could be that it helps them to relax or maybe it increases arousal or, um, you know, maybe it's a way to cope with boredom, right? Hmm. There are so many different functions that fantasies serve in our life. Um, uh, and so I think that speaks to the, the power and importance that they have. And also because fantasies are a way that people sometimes work through their future sexual plans before actually acting on them. It's sort of mm. a way to kind of plan out future encounters. So it can be ad adaptive and healthy in that way and in, in kind of giving you a mental roadmap before you actually jump into right, it. Right, of what things you might yeah. actually want to do and not do and how you want to go about doing it. And... It's like the sexual secret you're putting out there to the universe and whether <laughs> it comes back to you is right. <laughs> you're just <laughs> scoping it out in a way. Although sometimes so in the fantasy, it, it, it's... When it plays out in reality, it's very different from how you imagine. <laughs> mm -hmm. it in your head. I bet. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of fantasies do you think people should? I mean, it, it, should is a difficult, mm -hmm. difficult question for a scientist to answer. But are there certain ones that are best kept as fantasies, and uh, others that might you you might really think about trying to enact or share with other people versus keeping them to yourself as a fantasy? Yeah, and I think there, there are two ways to answer this. One is sort of on the individual level. Um, you know, you need to look at this on a case-by-case -case basis. And based on you and your relationship, maybe certain fantasies would just be off limits in terms of sharing or acting on it because you're, you know your partner would be really uncomfortable with it. Uh, and, and maybe sharing that fantasy with your partner could be very threatening to them in some way. So you need to look at this in the context of your own relationship and, and kind of make some of those decisions for yourself but in, in broader i think your broader social context your family your right. friends your community what is what is acceptable what's not acceptable and so on right and that's that's actually one of the big things that holds people back from acting on their fantasies is right. the fear of what would my partner say what would other people think um my religious community for example so uh those those social considerations are certainly one factor um but then there's also this this certain set of fantasies that are non-consensual or pose a serious risk of physical uh, harm to, to one or more participants in it. And when you're talking about non-consensual and really dangerous activities, um, those are the kinds of cases where, you, you know, some cause for concern is warranted. And if, say, a non-consensual fantasy where it's legitimately non-consensual, it's not like... Uh, it's not pretend non-consent. Yeah. Right. Like consensual non-consent. Right. No, it's, We're it's talking, real non-consent. It's a crime. Yes. Yeah. Straight up non-consensual activities. When that becomes your preferred fantasy content um, and, and you're fantasizing about that more than anything else, mm. I think that's a sign that it might be time to seek help um, to avoid the potential risk of you acting on that fantasy. Where would you seek help? What would be your, you know, if some someone came to you, and I'm sure nowadays you do have people coming to you and being like, this is my predominant fantasy. What the hell do I do? Where, what would you send, send them? So I am not a sex therapist. But right, I exactly. But yeah. two sex therapists. And I think, um, you know, if you're in the United States, it's, it's best to find a, a therapist who is certified through ASECT, which would guarantee that they would have some level of um, appropriate sexuality training and could probably help you to to deal with um, fantasies that you might be very concerned about. ASECT, 
being the, the American Association for Sex Sexuality Educators, Education. Counselors, and Therapists. Therapists, right. It's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, and that's a safe place for them because I mean, I mean, someone's listening now and they have a fantasy and they think, I'm going to act on this. If I if I go to one of these people that belong to whatever. A-sect. A-sect. Mm-hmm. A-sect are they, certified. Are, are they safe? <laughs> Is that a safe place for them to go and, and speak mm. about these fantasies? I, I would say that that would be your best bet okay. probably. Mm. Um, you know, if, if I'm going to refer someone to to a therapist or go seek help for a sexuality related issue, I think you want to look for somebody who has ASEC credentials okay. because they have certain standards uh, to ensure for everybody who is certified. And, and those and, are pretty high, I think, uh, requirements, like they're pretty extensive, those requirements for ASEC certification, I believe, right? Right. Yeah. And, and what you want to avoid is that, you know, a therapist is going to judge you or shame you and give you therapy mm-hmm. that's based more on their personal moral beliefs and convictions. And so I think if you, if you go the ASEC route, you're more likely to find someone who will will be accepting and validating of you and isn't going to shame you or judge you. But that said, I think we should mention that many states in the U.S. have these mandatory reporting laws. Yep. I was just going to follow up on that. I was just going <laughs> to say, yeah. Yeah, especially for certain types of crimes or even yep. thought crimes, basically yep. fantasies that you feel like you might act on even if you haven't acted on. Like, um, Wait, some states, if you go to a fantasy that it's illegal, that person can report you? If the therapist thinks that you're likely to act on it or if you divulge some information uh, that, that would be considered a crime, then they have to report wow. you. So, so for example, um, I talk about this a little bit in the book about pedophilia fantasies right. and how if someone goes to a therapist and, and talks about uh, you know how they're sexually attracted to, to children, and if they admit that they've watched child porn, that therapist in certain states has a legal obligation to report that uh, individual to the wow. authorities. Yeah. And we have data showing that in states where they act these mandatory reporter laws for therapists, that the number of pedophiles who voluntarily seek treatment drops off oh, to zero. Of yeah, yeah. Um, go figure. So yeah. You shut off their only avenue for potentially seeking help. And I think this is an area where we need to have a broader social discussion about how do we deal with these sort of dark and, and dangerous fantasies. And mm. I think if we look at uh, Germany, uh, where they have this very different model where they, they try to create some institutional support and therapy resources for people with pedophilia. With pedophilia, even if they have offended in the past. Mm-hmm. So they kind of take away this mandatory reporting law, even if you have offended and if you haven't been caught by, by the authorities, the, the researchers or the therapists, they're not going to report you because the goal here is to give you help so you don't re-offend. Right. Right. You know, if you haven't gotten caught by the authorities, they're probably not going to catch you. I mean, that's for anything that you've committed in the past, you know, that's already done. So what the researchers and the therapists want to create is prevent as much as they can any future offending that hasn't yet happened. And you potentially have a chance to do that if you bring these people into into your office so and sad. give them some give them some therapy Super otherwise sad. they have no no other way yeah we've we had uh, dr james Cantor yep. last season to talk about pedophilia and we we discussed about some of these things but yeah unfortunately what that means is that for people with certain types of fantasies they in, in certain states in the us they might not be able to to get the help that they want in terms mm-hmm. of managing them hmm. yeah if you have some difficult non-consensual fantasies Move to a state state without <laughs> <Yeah>. mandatory <laughs> reporting law. That's the takeaway. Move. <laughs> yeah. um, move to a state where you can find an ASEC certified therapist. And even with those th- therapists, I think it's a good idea to look into them a little bit and yeah. and get a sense of who they are, what what are the kinds of clients they see, and and what their take on some of these more difficult 
aspects of, of human sexuality are because many of these ASEC certified therapists might be pretty good therapists, but they deal mostly with, I don't know, other kinds of you know, lack of sexual desire in long-term relationships, mm-hmm. you know, something that's not taboo right. <laughs> at all. So, yeah. yeah. So, so how vanilla are we? I know we talked about the darker <laughs> side and all these things. Are we still generally vanilla people in terms of like what we enjoy? Like, I mean, even vanilla is a, is a subjective I guess term, so. You know, yeah, but, yes, yeah. You know, because uh, well, is multiple partner sex vanilla or not? I don't. I mean, if it isn't, then <laughs> I don't so, think so. so. It's funny. The Atlantic wrote an article about my book um, a month or two ago, and their headline for the article was "American sexual fantasies are pretty vanilla." Like that was their mm. read on interesting uh, the, the major themes I came up with. So, so some people look at you know multi partner sex BDS and um, uh, taboo activities and they think oh we're very kinky but others look at that and think oh that's that's pretty vanilla uh, that's but, hysterical yeah <laughs> like I look at that that's rocky road that's yeah. not vanilla to me multiple the, partner sex and is not vanilla BDSM and well, all those yeah, BD- yeah. Uh, BDSM really people people <laughs> that's, that's categorize the, the taboo stuff as as vanilla hey. or h- what percentage of people were had fantasies that fell into the t- taboo one? Uh, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head because it varied across, you know, whether we're talking about, say, exhibitionism fantasies or voyeurism. For some of those fantasies, it was a majority of people who reported having them before. I think exhibitionism mm-hmm. and, and, well, voyeurism in particular was one of those cases where I'm pretty confident in my recollection that it was a majority both men and women had fantasized about spying on someone else before. Uh, so when you think about that, you know, a lot of these taboo activities are actually Pretty, pretty common commonly desired. Mm-hmm. and speaking of men and women were there gender differences there were and i've got a whole chapter on it that looks at both the similarities and the differences um i think that we have a lot in common you know a lot of the things most of the things that men are fantasizing about women are fantasizing about too and and vice versa um there are differences in the frequency with which people have certain fantasies though so what are some i don't know the, the biggest takeaways in terms of differences and in terms of similarities so men are more likely to have multi-partner fantasies and to have them more often um but most women have still had multi-partner fantasies before um women have passion and romance fantasies more often and they're more likely to have them compared to men um but most men have those fantasies too (laughs) another case where you see uh an interesting difference is that women had more of what i call the sort of the sexual flexibility fantasies where they're sort of experimenting with the boundaries of their sexual orientation so Mm. um fantasies about a same-sex partner were much more common among heterosexually identified women than they were among heterosexually identified men. Um, but among men, they had a lot more of the the gender-bending fantasies where they had fantasized about having the body of the other sex or... Um, cross-dressing. Cross-dressing mm-hmm. or having sex with a transgender partner. Ooh, why do you think we're finding that distinction, that women are more more likely to kind of bend the, the boundaries of sexual orientation versus mm-hmm. men, the boundaries of gender? Mm-hmm. And that's something I find super fascinating. I think for for women, the sexual flexibility part um, may come down to a lot of the research we've seen that, that shows that women have this more nonspecific genital response when they're shown different types of pornography. So they seem to um, demonstrate arousal to a wider range of, of, of uh, stimuli and, and partners. So there, there might be a reason for that that's very different from why men are more open to the gender bending angle. I think that might have something to do with say sort of cultural pressures that are on mm. men to be very rigid in terms of their gender role and so this is a way of sort of um you know breaking free of that mm. in some ways um but yeah it's it's, it's a tough question yeah. to answer that's interesting yeah i was gonna say something along those lines of 
uh, I think for men, it's the masculinity, is the manliness that is maybe the the, the, the toughest, the most, the strictest, I guess, mm-hmm. set of norms around them. And sexual orientation, being straight, is part of that, but it's really about about being a man. Right. Uh, whereas, and and the narrower set of of available options for how you can be a man and still be a man right right? whereas for women i think there's a lot more flexibility in how we can express our gender starting from the basic you you can wear pants Hmm. and a short and short hair and you know not be perceived as an improper woman by any stretch of the imagination Mm -hmm. to things like personality wise and what kinds of professions you take on and all that whereas for men that is much that's much more restricted still. Yeah. And, and I think related to that, there was great interest among men in my survey in um, submissive sexual activities. Mm. Uh, so, you know, part of the masculine gender role is this idea that men should be dominant and should be the initiators of sex. But I saw that men are often fantasizing about taking a submissive role and wanting their partner to initiate the activity. So, so part of that, I think, is breaking free of that masculine gender role. The other part is that men ultimately want to feel desired. Uh, and that's a big part of our fantasies is wanting to feel wanted. So mm. we see that coming out in a lot of men's fantasies. Okay, so there, there are those gender differences. Uh, how about any other demographic differences? Did you look at maybe how fantasies changed um, with age or with sexual orientation or mm-hmm. race or any any other kind of demographic differences that you looked at? Yeah, it looked at all of them. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, th- what came out? So I think the age findings are really interesting um, because they suggest that there's maybe this developmental time course of our sexual fantasies because our sexual needs and... All right, can you say that in English just now? What? Developmental time core, what? Basically, the... the, the Easy to understand version yeah. is that your psychological needs change as you age. You okay. know? So at different points in your life, that's what a you developmental or, or want okay. different things. Okay. Uh, and and I think that that plays out in our fantasies. Our fantasies reflect where we are in our lives right now and what we need. So one case where I saw a, an interesting age related difference was in threesome and multi partner fantasies, um, where you actually see that they increase with age to a point. It's actually mm. curvilinear, meaning it interest in multi-partner sex fantasies increases up to about age 40, stays high through the mid-50s, and then starts to decline again. Interesting. Um, so people have this stereotype that, you know, it's, it's college students and young adults who are the most interested in threesomes and most likely to have them, and that's not true at all. Yeah. It's actually, you know, sort of It takes a while, people. maybe, till you get to the point of wanting that. Right, and I think hmm. part of it is a lot of those people are in monogamous, long-term relationships, and they're looking for novelty in a way of yeah. spicing things Right, up. whereas the young people are getting a lot of novelty or different partners maybe not in the context of threesomes, but because they have these more transient, shorter relationships. And so in a course of a year or two, they might end up having sex with yeah. you know, three, four people. Right. Um, so so they're getting that need for, for different partners met. And to them, sex yeah. is just still new. Like sex right. itself sex is itself. a novelty, yeah. even if it's just with one person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, let it's alone not just. Group. Yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah, it's beyond just. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's like you said at the beginning, though, the podcast, when you said the easiest fantasy to do is just add one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when they get to 40, like, how can we spice? Oh, let's just bring someone mm-hmm. else in here. That's been great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or swap with another couple. Or yeah. Right, right. You see non-monogamy fantasies also increase with age uh, as well. But again, you see, you see this decline in, as people are in their 60s and 70s, um, which I think makes sense because either you've already done it all at that point or you know, you're, you're 
health and other issues are changing. And so maybe what makes sex pleasurable or what is desirable when it comes to sex changes again at that point. What was the most common one or more common than other ages among the older adults, like the six people in their 60s or 70s? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> if, yeah, if you don't. You always ask them the hard questions. I know. <laughs> See, Justin, I give you the easy questions. <laughs> how about, how about the, young, the young folks? Do you, do you remember what category was more prevalent among young people than... Yes. Than among the mid- middle-aged? So among young adults, uh, BDSM fantasies were more common. Mm. Uh, mm. And I suspect that part of that is due to uh, younger folks having more anxieties and insecurities and hang-ups about sex. And BDSM is, is a way that oftentimes people cope with with that. Mm. Um, because, for example, with, say, uh, masochistic fantasies, that, you know, that experience of, of pain creates a state of mindfulness. It brings you into the here and now. And so can take you out of your head and I, I think oftentimes that's what younger adults are looking for do you think the whole cultural effects of i don't know 50 shades of gray or being kind of more open about it or maybe even porn as some have argued becoming more more aggressive or more violent or just having more of these bdsm elements in it that that has played a role in, in terms of why these fantasies are so popular among young adults in particular or younger adults who might be watching more porn or yeah it, it could be and you know I do find that there is a connection between porn and our sexual fantasies but it, it goes both ways uh, in that people their fantasies are often coming from what they've seen in porn but more often than not they're using porn as a way of vicariously living out mm. their sexual fantasies mm. um, so, so more often than not Porn is the outlet for our fantasies rather than the source of them. So mm-hmm. it could be contributing in some ways to maybe why BDSM and other things are so popular. But um, I, I don't think ultimately that that is what is driving most of our fantasy content. Mm-hmm. So your book, Tell Me What You Want, is this a sexual time capsule? Like <laughs> 20 years from now, if you decided to do a, a, you know, another mm-hmm. book, the part two, mm-hmm. uh, do, do you see it being similar? Do you see big shifts? How do you, how do you picture that? Uh, that? That's a great question. And I think that our fantasies are very much a product of our culture mm. to some degree. And so you would see changes over time in terms of what fantasies are, are more or less popular. So, um, yeah, I think you should look at this as it's a snapshot in time right now. Yeah. Um, but, and it will likely change in the future and it's probably different from what it was in the past, but unfortunately we don't have the data yeah. to look historically. It's almost like if you look at your word cloud, it's the perfect yeah. thing. Like the big letter ones, the things that pop out huge, those will pro- those are infinite. Like the right. threesome, the bondage, the dominance. If you did this book 20 years from now, that's probably still be the, you know, the massive letters on the word cloud, but maybe the, there'd be different smaller ones popping in there that are getting bigger, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, you can also see that, for example, with Pornhub's search trends, right? Mm. Uh, you can see year over year, like, what's what's in, what's popular. <laughs> what's trending. In porn, right? So, so our fantasies, there's, you know, there's certainly some zeitgeist element to it, yeah. depending on what's going on in the culture. Any differences between Democrats and Republicans? Very often when we talk about some of these things, there's this notion that, oh, Republicans, even though they're pretending to be more conservative, they're actually, you know, watching more porn or they're kinkier or dirtier in some of their fantasies. Did you find anything like that or were, were the Democrats sort of the, the dirtier and because they're the more liberal and you would expect that? So I found that people who identified as Republicans, um, were more likely to have taboo sexual fantasies. Uh-huh. Um, they were you did? Yes. Mm. They were fantasizing about, more likely to have fantasies about voyeurism, uh, infidelity, orgies, um, a wide range of taboo activities and things that they're 
told they're not supposed to, to mm. want to do. Um, Democrats, I found that one area where they had more fantasies was in BDSM. Um, and so I think kind of what's going on that explains both of these is that ultimately a lot of what turns us on is what we're told we can't do and what's taboo. And I think for, for Democrats who tend to espouse ideals of equality, playing with power is, is a taboo in some ways. And so maybe oh, yeah. that explains why they're more likely to have the BDSM fantasies. But uh, for Republicans, we're told they can't really do anything other than have <laughs> penile vaginal intercourse. Yes. With their marital, marriage. yeah. Uh, you know, it's all kinds of ways of breaking free of that, such as infidelity. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. We need to look into that more. <laughs> but again, yeah. that's just fantasies, right? That's not their desires, correct, right? Well, yeah. But their I, fantasies, as he said, for 80% of people were something that they okay. wanted to act out on. At so. least if it was their biggest fantasy. It was, it was a yes. big fantasy. And, and we should have talked about this in the beginning, but since we didn't, <laughs> we should mention it now. This is not a nationally representative sample. No. How did you get the sample and what kind of generalizations can we draw mm-hmm. from these findings given that, yes, it's a big sample size and people often see, oh my God, 4,000 people, That that's really big, but the limitation is that it's not representative. So great point. And I don't make any claims that it is representative. It's large and it's very diverse. I had people from all 50 states ranging in age from 18 to 87, representing all political and religious backgrounds, gender identities, sexual orientation. So it's very diverse, but it's not representative. And and if you look at the demographics, it more closely aligns with the average social media user than it does with the average American. Mm. So I think the findings tend to say a little bit more about um, people who are a little younger, people who uh, tend to have more positive attitudes about sex in the first place, because people who don't have positive <laughs> attitudes about sex tend not to take our, our surveys. Mm-hmm. So so there are some limits on, on who we can generalize this to. Um, but I did have, you know, hundreds of Republicans, retirees, non-college educated adults, people who don't typically get represented in our sex studies. So it does allow me to shed some light on what they might be fantasizing about and doing, mm. but we need more follow-up work that, that right. is representative to, to draw from conclusions. But certainly some of those differences that you can look at across you know, different, you know, as you said, different genders or classes or, or mm-hmm. education statuses or religion, uh, those those are still pretty valid if yeah. you're looking at those differences. Yeah. Now, listening to you for the last hour or so, it's obvious why sex nerds would love this book. <laughs> but if you're not a sex nerd, what, what is the takeaway from this book? Yeah, mm-hmm. give us some applied advice. I mean, that's for sex nerds too, but I'm just saying for <laughs> yeah, the yeah, non-sex yeah. nerd who doesn't know all the things about all these What can people learn from this book that is going to be useful to their mm-hmm. personal sex lives? Right. The, the name of the book, the title, does have how this can help you improve your sex life. Mm-hmm. So one of the big things people can take away is learning about whether or not they're normal in in terms of do other people have the same fantasies that I do? People tend to think that their fantasies are rare or uncommon, and uh, that's one of the big things that that prevents them from talking about and sharing those fantasies with other people. So I think uh, this book will help to answer that question of am I normal and make you feel better about a lot of the fantasies that you have. So uh, and all you went through to write this book, I mean, all the studies you poured through and you're going through how, what how, what's applicable to people now, did you get what you wanted when you sat down and, and decided to four years ago and be like, this I wrote this book because it will help people do this. Is did you did you uh, you know cross the finish line? Did you hit your goal? Did you hit the home run? All those sports metaphors there. Yeah. So so ultimately, what I really wanted for this book was to to answer some questions that I had about sexual fantasies. It wasn't about me trying to make the data say you know a certain thing or a certain message. It was I was curious to learn and to write a book that could help people 
um, better understand their own sex fantasies and and learn how they might be able to better talk about and share those fantasies with a partner. So there's a big part of the book devoted to that that looks at how do you talk to your partner about your sex fantasies? And if you're thinking about acting on them, what do you need to know in order to ensure that it is safe and mutually pleasurable? So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a book that answers a lot of questions, but it's also sort of a roadmap for how you can take your fantasy to reality if that's something you want to do. Mm -hmm. The other part, too, is how do we just make it easier as a culture and society to to talk about sex, mm. right? So, Justin, four years later, is it, <laughs> uh, the the ride's over. Is it, I mean, do you feel like a weight off your shoulders? <laughs> I mean, how, what are you feeling now, like the afterglow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, to borrow a sex phrase. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, it's still pretty intense because I've done a lot of promotion for the book, and um, I'm actually out doing a lot of public speaking about it as well. Uh, and then I'm also in the beginning stages of working on the next book project. So there's, Already? there's really no Give no yourself break. a break. I know. Justin, geez. Hey, I took a weekend in Vegas okay. last weekend. <laughs> um, but, You're unstoppable. Yeah. What's the next one? Or you can't tell us yet. Can't it, tell you yet. Okay. It's a uh, secret. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's the response been so far? So the response to the book's been great. I've gotten a lot of emails and, and comments from people who have said that the book is Changed their life and they, wow yes. so what's that make you feel like that's gotta like <laughs> hit you deep down right it it feels good knowing that it, it has helped people have an easier time having conversations about sex in their own life so it's done what i had hoped it would do mm -hmm. um and it hasn't I, I was a little worried about the book in terms of there are some findings in there that are controversial for example the political findings yeah. i was worried right. what's going to yeah. happen here um but so far it hasn't really been controversial it's just been positive feedback have you been crazy enough to go through the amazon reviews <laughs> you put yourself through that um i i've i've looked i, okay. I always look at reviews okay um, because you're an average but... of 4.2 out of 5 which is very good <laughs> very good dr john a couple of these reviews brilliant wonderful book fascinating information another well-written book by justin laymiller worked amazingly that's that's got that's got to make you feel end, all yeah. squishy inside right <laughs> sure but but you know it's the same thing when you know you're a teacher and you have teaching evaluations is uh you, you there's always mixed feedback course, yeah. uh, to some degree and so you you um enjoy the positive ones and you learn what you can from from the critical ones but don't perseverate on them <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you just made a big change in your personal career mm -hmm. sort of uh you left academia yeah so after 10 years i left full-time academics to become uh an author and writer and, and speaker uh, i still have an academic appointment at the kinsey institute so i'll still keep doing research publishing it but the focus going forward is writing and, and speaking and it's it's exciting wow yeah. that is a big change and there's a lot of travel involved in <laughs> going on a little speaking tour around the country this fall, which is exciting. Nice. Yeah. Well, have fun. Yeah. Enjoy all well, the travel. Well, he's a sex superstar. He may he not come back a for a third superstar. time. I mean, <laughs> he's second time. He's, he's, he's the only member of the second time club. But I don't know. He might be too big for the, to be a third time uh, <laughs> visit. Right? You're not going to forget about us, are you, Justin? No. Okay. I don't think you will. I'll okay. make sure he does not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Dr. Justin Lamiller, thank you so much for being a second timer on the <laughs> our first second timer on the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you. Hopefully I can become a lifer. Uh, here's the hoping. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you all should take a look at... Uh, Tell me what you want, the science of sexual desire, and how it can help you improve your sex life. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. All right, Dr. John, remind me I have to send uh, Justin a plaque for being in the two-time member club of the... <laughs> 
Science Six podcast. You do realize we are going to have a, a few of the two, those two timers going forward, I know, right? He's the he's first. not the only one. He is the first. first. Though, so he's, he's the, the one who gets a plaque. No one okay. else gets a plaque. We can't afford <laughs> to give everyone plaques who've been here multiple times. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, Doctor John, we're wrapping up episode forty-two of the Science Six podcast. But before we go, we should mention that you are going to be out and about as usual. Yes, there are a couple of events coming up. On October 15th, I'm doing a workshop on open relationships for Touchpoint at The Assemblage, that kind of co-working space that uh, offers all sorts of talks and, and uh, workshops and whatnot. And Touchpoint is is one of these uh, series of events that is happening there on a regular basis. Then they're starting a sex ed series, and I'm going to be one of the educators doing a, a workshop open there. Relation. On, Do you know anything about the, that? I, a thing or two. Not not too much, but okay. you know, a all thing right. or two. All right, so that's October 15th. <laughs> that's October 15th, and okay. then that same week... October 18th, I'm doing one of my sex science socials at the Hacienda Villa in Brooklyn. And this one is on debunking sex myths. Oh, okay. Like the Yeti and the... uh, Well, is that a sex myth? Oh, oh, no. That's just the... the, That's just a myth. That's just a myth. Okay. That's just a myth. So what... what, what, (laughs) I mean, I don't know if there's something sexy about (laughs) about Yeti. Yeti, The Yeti, yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) But that that was inspired by a talk that I gave at Burning Man this this year that uh, covered, you know, a bunch of different sex myths that ruin lives and that uh, make people's lives you know less less ideal than than they could be and uh people wanted to hear that again in new york and uh in a way that's shareable to more than just the people who are at burning man right so we're gonna do that at the hacienda villa on october 18th that's cool you know i heard i heard unfortunately these these reports out of the burning man where you were not as wild and crazy about you the burn it's not the burning man it's burning i I call it the burning man you can't do that you you weren't as wild and crazy this time around i was not as wild and crazy i was giving talks and going to other talks you're all grown up dr jana no it was just this burn it doesn't mean anything about following burns it just happened all right okay okay maybe at the next the burning man you can (laughs) do not spread rumors about me all right all right so we are back next week in the meantime make sure you check out our fancy website thesciencesexpodcast.com. You get all our episodes there. You could send us messages. If we have another sex question palooza, you could drop your message there, correct? We are going to have another sex question palooza, so do drop your questions in there or email us at info at sciencesexpodcast.com. Cool. Oh, check out our new Instagram. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we have, have all it. beautiful photos of us there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We, we got a lot of nice comments. Where, you, what were one of the comments from our Instagram, by the way? We have, you know, we're very popular in the, uh, you know, open relationship community, polyamory community. Uh-huh. So there's this tribe that follows us on the Instagram, uh-huh. right? Uh, the Instagram. And, on the Instagram. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's these two young ladies. They had posted a photo about themselves. And he goes, any of you talk about your crushes with your significant other? Hunter and I always did when we were monogamous, and since we've become a triad with Ashley, we openly talk about it. Ash and I had a good laugh this week because I had a crush on an older guy I recently met. Anyway, we were talking about hot older guys when we realized how hot at Joe Partavilla from the podcast we like is. Really? Yes. We love to tease each other, but I'm glad we have a relationship that encourages us to be open and honest with one another. (gasps) Wow. They have a crush on you? I mean- Oh my God, Joe. There's bound to be one person, right? There's bound to be one, but now apparently there are two. So of course there are two. Two now. Uh, I am so no, sad no, no. to disappoint them, but you're I not available. Go. You're not yes. on the market, so they can't add you as their fourth. No, no, I don't think that's did, a possibility. Did, did, did you read this to your to your partner? 
you can follow huh? us on Science and Sex Podcast. <laughs> How would she feel about this? Science and Sex Podcast is the Instagram address. <laughs> Dr. Jana, don't get me in trouble. I'm going to see you next week, all right? Bye. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.